Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On this episode of Alert, with the recent overthrow of Egyptian strongman Hosni Mubarak and populist uprisings exploding all over North Africa and the Arab world, we will examine the political dynamics in play and the prospects for meaningful change in the region with London-based academic and lecturer Adam Hania. We will also look at the labor unrest in Madison, Wisconsin, currently making headlines across North America with internationally known scholar, author, commentator, and filmmaker Saul Landau. First, the alert headlines for the week of February 24th, 2011. Human Rights Watch is reporting at least 332 people have been killed in Libya in a massive government crackdown on pro-democracy activists. Despite the violence, the protests against the 42-year reign of Muammar Gaddafi appear to be gaining steam. Civilians have reportedly taken control of Benghazi, Libya's second city. Oil workers at the Nafura oil field have gone on strike, and protests have spread to the capital city of Tripoli. There are reports that the home of Libya's parliament in Tripoli has been set on fire. On Sunday, Gaddafi's son vowed to institute a series of reforms, but he warned that the protests could lead to a civil war. About 350 people gathered in Toronto's Young Dundas Square last Sunday to rally in support of anti-government protesters in Libya and call for the ouster of longtime leader Muammar Gaddafi. Chanting, the world must know Gaddafi has to go, the crowd carried signs and expressed outrage at the ruling regime's crackdown on protesters. Many who gathered in Toronto said they are struggling to stay informed about events in Libya since a media crackdown has restricted the flow of information out of the country. The rally comes eight days after Egyptians gathered in the same square to celebrate the departure of longtime leader Hosni Mubarak. Canada has threatened to scrap a trade deal with the European Union if the EU persists with regulations that would block the import of highly polluting tar sands oil, according to EU documents and sources. The free trade deal was expected to be concluded later this year. EU regulations that require fuel suppliers to reduce the carbon footprint of fuels by 6% over the next decade would restrict the market for fuels derived from Canada's tar sands. Ottawa is thought to be preparing to launch a World Trade Organization challenge against the EU's contention about tar sands oil. In defense of beleaguered Minister of International Cooperation Bev Oda, Prime Minister Stephen Harper told Parliament that the Canadian International Development Agency should give money only to the poorest and most vulnerable. But this is not what CETA is doing, says Mining Watch Canada. In a letter received by Mining Watch Canada, Bev Oda acknowledges the agency has set aside $499,445 for a corporate social responsibility project at a Barrick mine site in Peru. Barrick Gold is the largest gold mining company in the world. CETA similarly funds several other Canadian mining companies that, like Barrick Gold, are among the most profitable mining companies in the world. The federal government will listen to opposition requests for next month's budget but won't, quote, engage in horse trading or negotiations. Prime Minister Stephen Harper met with NDP leader Jack Layton, who outlined his party's budget list as speculation continued about a spring election. 
A liberal spokesperson said Friday there has been no discussion of the budget between leader Michael Ignatieff and the Harper, and no meeting was planned. The federal budget is expected on March 22nd. Prime Minister Stephen Harper is touring one of the two cargo ships that delivered hundreds of Tamil migrants to Canadian shores over the past two years as he tries to drum up support for his government's immigration reform bill C-49. Harper was on board the MV Ocean Lady that brought 76 Sri Lankan migrants in October 2009. Another 492 Sri Lankan migrants arrived aboard the MV Sunsea last August. Harper says the Conservative government is cracking down on illegal human smuggling and sending a message with its reforms that abuse of Canada's immigration system will not be tolerated. Critics say Bill C-49 is an attack on refugees and not on human smugglers. The U.S. has vetoed an Arab resolution at the U.N. Security Council condemning Israeli settlements in the Palestinian territories as an obstacle to peace. All 14 other members of the Security Council backed the resolution, which had been endorsed by the Palestine Liberation Organization. It was the first veto exercised by the Obama administration, which had promised better relations with the Muslim world. A Palestinian official said the talks process would now be reassessed. Washington was under pressure from Israel and Congress, which is a strong pro-Israel lobby, to use its veto. It had placed enormous pressure on the Palestinians to withdraw the resolution and accept alternatives, but these were ultimately rejected. The resolution, sponsored by at least 130 countries, declared Israeli settlements in Palestinian territories illegal and a major obstacle to the achievement of a just, lasting, and comprehensive peace. Speaking from Ramallah in the West Bank, PL Secretary General Yasser Abed Rabot said the U.S. veto was unfortunate and, quote, affected the credibility of the U.S. administration. In Washington, House Republicans have approved a budget bill that cuts more than $61 billion from current spending levels and targets key elements of the Obama administration's agenda, including the nation's new health care law. If the Republican bill became law, federal funding for Planned Parenthood would be cut off. Federal family planning and teen pregnancy prevention grants would end. Funding for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting would be eliminated. In addition, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency would be prohibited from imposing regulations curbing greenhouse gas emissions. The EPA's budget would decrease by $3 billion. Pell grants for lower-income college students would be reduced by $5.6 billion. And food aid for poor pregnant women and women with children up to the age of five would be cut by $747 million. The House and Senate are set for a showdown over the budget that could result in the temporary shutdown of the government. In Britain, activists from the group UK Uncut held demonstrations outside more than two dozen branches of Barclays Bank over its failure to pay its fair share of taxes. In 2009, the bank made $18.2 billion in profits but paid just 1% of that in taxes. This comes at a time when the British government is slashing public services due to lack of funds. The Teslin Tlingit Council in southern Yukon has signed a historic agreement to run its own justice system, allowing the self-governing First Nation to enact its own laws and set up its own court. The agreement allows the First Nation to enact its own laws in a variety of areas, including wildlife protection, control of the First Nation's settlement land, controlling overcrowding of homes, local zoning and planning, adoption, the solemnization of marriages and wills and inheritances, according to the release. 
The First Nation will establish a peacemaker court to prosecute violations of its legislation, impose penalties, and resolve disputes based on traditional Teslin Tlingit processes. The Teslin Tlingit's justice system will not only apply to its own citizens, but also to non-citizens who are visiting or residing on Teslin Tlingit traditional lands. Those are the alert headlines for the week of February 24, 2011. Now for Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of February 24, 2011. CKLN, the community-run radio station housed at Ryerson University in Toronto, needs your help. The station has been granted a stay of the decision of the CRTC to revoke CKLN's broadcasting license, which would have seen the station go off the air on February 12th. The station is now waiting for the Federal Court of Appeals to review their request for leave of, to appeal the CRTC's initial decision. What you can do is simple. Go to www.ckln.fm and sign the online petition to show your support for CKLN and community-run radio. You can also write to the CRTC and their MPs telling them why CKLN is important. All contact information and letter forms are available at CKLN. And lastly, tell your friends, family, and colleagues to do the same. Journalist and host of Democracy Now! Amy Goodman will be in Edmonton on February 26th to celebrate the 14th anniversary of her show and the launch of her book, Breaking the Sound Barrier. She will speak on the role of independent media in promoting social justice. This free talk begins at 7 o'clock p.m. and will be held at the University of Alberta. A forum in Toronto will explore the recent protests and revolutions in Tunisia and Egypt and ask, what else is possible in the Arab world? Speakers include activists, researchers, visual artists, poets, and community organizers from groups such as the Group for Research and Initiative for the Liberation of Africa, Tadamon Montreal, and various art collectives from across the country. The forum will be held at Beit Zatun on February 26th. The discussion begins at 7 o'clock p.m. Admission is pay what you can. The 7th Annual Israeli Apartheid Week will take place in Toronto from March 7th to 13th. Lectures, films, and actions will highlight some of the successes of the BDS movement from the past year and explore many challenges facing the movement to end Israeli apartheid. Confirmed speakers in Toronto include Palestinian-American journalist Ali Abunama and philosopher Judith Butler. For more information on the events in Toronto or other Israeli Apartheid Week events across the globe, go to apartheidweek.org. The 2011 Phillips Clark Memorial Lecture will feature Professor of Economics at the University of Manitoba, John Loxley. Loxley will be discussing the global economic crisis, fiscal restraint, and public-private partnerships. The lecture will be held in the Oakham Lounge at Ryerson University in Toronto on March 10th and will begin at 7 o'clock p.m. The Toronto Free Gallery is hosting a show of poster art organized by Groundswell that documents the hidden history of social justice movements. These include the Stonewall Rebellion, the AIDS activist group ACT UP, the 1988 Democratic Uprising in Burma, the 1804 Haitian Revolution, and many more. The show runs until March 19th. The gallery is open Wednesday to Friday, 12 to 5 o'clock p.m., and Saturday, 12 to 6 o'clock p.m. Admission is free. And that's all for Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of February 24, 2011.
Has the revolution in the Middle East spread to Madison, Wisconsin? What's happening here? Why are the peaceful folks of this quiet Midwestern state taking to the streets? Saul Landau, Alert's favorite U.S. commentator, is back with us again to explain what is happening down there and why Wisconsin could be a harbinger of things to come. He lived in Wisconsin for a decade a while back, and we're hopeful he might haul something out of his memory bank that gives some historical context to the events of today. Saul Landau is an award-winning filmmaker and a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. We found him at his home in Alameda, California. Hi, Saul. Welcome back. Well, thank you for having me. So give us some background. For those of our listeners who haven't been following the events in Wisconsin, can you bring us up to date? What is it that Governor Scott Walker is proposing that has pushed the people of Madison onto the streets? Well, the governor, um, under the guise of reducing the deficit or reining in the deficit, is trying to break unions. It's pretty much as simple as that. It's a power play, and... It's going on around the country, and this was essentially what the Tea Party backers wanted, these Koch brothers, these multi-billionaires who financed the Tea Party and financed the campaigns of these characters who have landed in the state houses in several states. And uh, all of them are going down the same track. How do you reduce the socially necessary cost of labor? By essentially hitting the middle class and the working class as hard as they can be hit, and by trying to confuse people into thinking that this is cost-saving. So that the same governor who gives a $117 million tax break to the large corporations of Wisconsin is now arguing that by cutting back on unions, that is collective bargaining, as if people, you know, and the funny thing is people, unions have been demonized, and people really think they're bad. They don't understand that they got weekends because of unions, that they have eight-hour days because of unions, do you that think they have all kinds of protection thanks to unions. Do you think and that they, this is because of, that he's attacking unions because they're, they're so strong? Is this, is this why he's attacking them? Well, I wouldn't exactly say unions are strong. I think after World War II, 40-something percent of the American workforce was uh, organized in unions, and today it's 12 percent or less. And uh, so you can't really call them very strong. Mm -hmm. This may be their last hurrah. If they don't win this one, if they don't stand up, I don't think, you know, we're going to have unions for, for a while that are going to be very meaningful, except in a few places around the country. So in a sense, this is labor's stand. It's got to make this stand. Uh, you know, a bunch of criminals got together, essentially. They didn't have to conspire. They all knew what they were doing. And they, they brought the economy down for a while. They, uh, they played it, you know, with what's called the OPM game. They used other people's money. And uh, they had a housing bubble, that burst. They speculated, they gambled, and they made out like bandits. In fact, they were bandits. But nothing happened to them. Because there's a rule in Washington, in fact, on Wall Street in New York and lots of other places um, where there's rich people, nothing succeeds in the United States in public life as much as failure. The more you screw up, the higher up you go. Look at our last president. His whole life was a failure. You know, I mean, everybody, you screw up. The, the guy who couldn't run the Arabian Horse Association became the head of FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. And you remember uh, what happened when Hurricane Katrina hit. Uh, Tim Geithner was supposed to be the Secretary of the Treasury. He was supposed to be monitoring the Wall Street activities, the securities 
uh, as hanky panky beyond belief was going on. And, Let's and bring after this his back failure to... to do so, he became Secretary of the Treasury. And now these horrible governors, I mean, they are really terrible because they're taking the, the core, the meat of the civil servant, teachers, firemen, policemen, state workers, who, without whom, like, we wouldn't have a civil society, and they're trying to break their backs. Well, let's bring this back to the streets of Wisconsin again. What, who are these protesters specifically? Like, what, are, what are they saying? What are their arguments here? Well, their argument is that if you destroy collective bargaining, workers have no rights. They can't, they can't argue. One by one, you can pick them off real easily. And that's exactly what they're saying. Now, anybody who thinks because Wisconsin voted Republican that that's the way the whole state is doesn't know the history of that state. Um, I graduated from the University of Wisconsin, and I got my graduate degree there in history. And that's the state of Robert La Follette and the progressive movement. And it's the state, um, when I was a student, the mayor of Milwaukee, the largest city in the state, was a socialist. And the mayor of Madison was close to it. And the, and the editor of the Capital Times, the Wisconsin newspaper, was a socialist. Now, the other side of the state was for Joe McCarthy. So it was a divided state. It was a strong labor state, and it was also a strongly reactionary state. And it still is. And the governor, uh, and there's a, you know, a, there's a hunk of jelly in the middle, and that jelly rolls one way or the other. And uh, because they were fed up with the Democrats and whatever, and the, the economy was going badly, they put a bunch of Republicans in power, as they did in Indiana and New Jersey and a whole bunch of other states where there's a strong union movement. And now the governor are giving them what for. They're showing them essentially what this Tea Party stands for. What do you which think is, is major capital? What do you expect will happen in Wisconsin? Well, I can't predict it. <clears throat> but, I mean, if I was younger, I would simply uh, get on an airplane, go out there, and stand with my brothers and sisters who I've never met, my union brothers and sisters. This is a strong stand, and it's, and it's a just one. Uh, People cannot allow big capital, two fat billionaires, the Koch brothers, to simply come in and say, that's it. The Supreme Court has already decided in the United States that the corporation is a person and can give as much money as it wants to political campaigns. Well, one person answered that by trying to marry a corporation, but she couldn't find one who would say either yes or no. Uh, but, I mean, the whole thing is absurd. We have a court that's making these ridiculous decisions. And at the same time, people are saying, oh, this is Egypt happening in Madison, Wisconsin. That's is this, baloney. Is this a situation that's unique to Wisconsin, or can we expect similar conflicts to arise elsewhere in the U.S.? I think you can look at Indiana and look to Ohio, and pretty soon maybe New Jersey as well, because similar laws are going to be introduced or similar measures are going to be taken by the governors in those states. And I think you're going to see a similar turnout. So the some class of... war is on. This has brought it on. I mean, I thought, you know, essentially how much more beating can poor people, middle class people take from the very rich? Well, some so, commentators have written that that what we're seeing in Wisconsin is the rise of a new labor movement that's focused kind of as much on the budgetary and political priorities of the state as uh, on collective bargaining, and that the leaders of this movement are public sector workers, not the traditional industrial working class. We well, don't have much of them anymore. <laughs> well, what's your, what's your comment on that, on that kind of uh, analysis? They are state workers. They definitely are. 
And that is the new union movement. If you add it up, that's the bulk of the of union membership today, the service workers and the public sector. And, you know, used to be steel workers and auto workers and glass workers and rubber workers, but now they're not in the United States. You know, years ago there was a, um, a comment made by Charlie Wilson, who was the CEO of General Motors. And um, when he was nominated to be defense secretary, somebody said, would this be a conflict of interest? And he said, no, no, what's good for General Motors is good for the country, and what's good for the country is good for General Motors. Well, in 1953, yeah, he had some some evidence on his side in the sense that General Motors was the country's largest employer, and it generated jobs in many other sectors. Today, you could have a bumper sticker on your car, and it would be accurate, and say what's good for General Motors is good for China. <laughs> well, on that note, I think we'll leave it there for tonight. Uh, thanks uh, for speaking with us again and bringing us kind of up to date on what's going on in Wisconsin. We're going to keep our eyes on all the events going on there. Well, you're seeing a new spiritual jump in the United States. You know, people thought it was, you know, our, our entire spiritual life was involved in shopping, car washing, and lawn mowing. And now we see there's more to it. <laughs> well, thanks for speaking with us again, Saul. Thank you. Bye-bye. Alert has been speaking with Saul Landau, award-winning filmmaker and member of the CD Editorial Collective, about the protests in Wisconsin. Pick up the latest issue of Canadian Dimension magazine today and discover how Canadian mining companies are behind serious human rights abuses and environmental destruction from the Congo to Ecuador. You can visit CanadianDimension.com to read some of these featured articles, check out our latest blogs, or order a subscription to Canadian Dimension. The Canadian Dimension special mining issue is on newsstands and in bookstores now. They call it a revolution. But what has really changed in Tunisia and Egypt and elsewhere in the Middle East? Adam Hani is a second-generation Palestinian refugee. From 2000 to 2002, he was research coordinator for Defense for Children in Ramallah, on the West Bank and appeared before the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child as a representative of the Palestinian Child Rights Coalition in 2002. He is co-author of a 2004 book examining Israel's detention of Palestinian children entitled Stolen Youth, the Politics of Israel's Detention of Palestinian Children. His articles have appeared in Middle East Research and Information Project, MERIP, Monthly Review, Journal of Palestine Studies, and other publications. Over the past few years, Adam took a Ph.D. from York University in Toronto, where he was active with Al-Ada Samoud Political Prisoners Group and the Coalition Against Israeli Apartheid. Most recently, Adam was appointed as lecturer at the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. Alert caught up with him at his office there. Uh, first of all, I guess what I'd like to uh, find out from you, uh, Adam, is what... Does uh, this this current round of uprisings say about the fragility of Arab regimes, and uh, why have we not seen this uh, until now? Well, I think uh, the uprising caught many people by surprise, and I, I think what it shows, though, is that these Arab regimes that for many decades have ruled through a combination of fear and repression, the, the, the security forces in the Arab world are quite renowned, uh, they revealed their remarkable fragility once the uh, people came out onto the streets uh, en masse and essentially lost their, lost their fear of, uh, of the regimes. Uh, 
in the, the, they've essentially crumbled in many cases, That's certainly the case in Egypt, the prolonged uh, weeks of uprising uh, brought Mubarak's regime to an end. We saw the same thing in Tunisia. And um, as we speak, we, we can see perhaps a similar, similar process in Libya, although there the, uh, the uprising has been met with a, a very violent uh, response by the Gaddafi regime. But uh, I think all in all it does show that uh, despite the appearance of these regimes, that uh, they rule, their rule was based on both this fear that they inculcated in the population as well as the, the fact that uh, people essentially felt that change was not possible. But once we saw people engaging in this kind of mass action, this was quickly shown to be a myth and we, and we saw these uh, regimes crumble. Has the the role of uh, Twitter and Facebook uh, been overstated in terms of the success of this uh, uprising? Well, there's no doubt that uh, these new forms of uh, electronic communication have played a a very important role in mobilizing people and and getting people onto the streets. Uh, Also, we should add to this the extremely important role of uh, satellite television, particularly Jazeera, uh, which has really uh, played an incredible role in, in showing people what has been going on. And it's no accident, of course, that all of the regimes faced with these uh, uprisings have attempted to shut down uh, Jazeera as well as the Internet and, and other forms of communication. But uh, the attempt by at the beginning of the uprising, I remember there was an attempt to kind of dub this as the Facebook revolution or the Twitter revolution. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's ludicrous to say this. Uh, people came out onto the streets um, and these were a means of mobilizing people, but it was the actual mobilization and the existing networks that existed within the countries that, uh, that really meant uh, and showed the power of the people once they came out. Now, as we're recording this, uh, another uh, lead regime, uh, that of Muammar Gaddafi, is uh, <clears throat> making announcements that uh, he won't be stepping down. I mean, how far do you see these uprisings spreading, and, and how successful do you anticipate they'll be? It's very difficult to make any kind of predictions about what will happen, but uh, certainly the the extent of the uprising in Libya has, uh, I think, caught everyone by surprise. Uh, and uh, there's no doubt that this the, the Gaddafi regime is at its most uh, tenuous uh, links or ten- tenuous uh, situation that it has faced for decades. Um, I mean, I'm cautiously optimistic that we will see the end of uh, the, the regime, but the question is, and, and it's been shown over the last few days, that uh, he's, he's, very, he's shown his willingness to meet these uprisings with uh, a lot of blood shooting uh, from the air, from, from um, mercenaries employed from surrounding countries, just into crowds. And, you know, the official figures we've heard from various NGOs of around 300 dead, I, I'm sure, are, are vastly understated given the kinds of reports that, are being hearing, that we're hearing from inside Libya itself. Okay. Now, what if we look at to the larger um, political and economic factors? Uh, th- these uh, uprisings are, are taking place uh, in the wake of the, uh, the, a major global economic crisis. Could you maybe expand a little bit, uh, you touch on it in the article, on how this economic crisis has, continu- has contributed to the, uh, the desperation of the people to... Uh, put forth their uh, demands and calls for change? Well, I think there's a, a few points to note here. The first is that uh, the 
these uprisings have really shown that the economic crisis is not limited to the advanced uh, core countries, North America and Europe. And this, this really has been a myth that has uh, been widely uh, perpetuated throughout much of the, the, the media, including radical commentators, that this, w this was a crisis that was just isolated to the United States, initially just the United States housing market or the European bond market. But what we're seeing, I think, is that it's reverberating and continues to reverberate throughout uh, the rest of the world and much of the South. And the reason for this is, is, I mean, there are many reasons for this, but uh, certainly we have to situate uh, these countries within decades of neoliberalism. Uh, Egypt in particular has really undergone uh, one of the most rapacious uh, neoliberal experiments over the last few decades. And so when the crisis hit, we're dealing with a country that was already uh, very much weakened, the social support mechanisms, um, the, the, the living situation of people in the country, very much on an edge because of these decades of neoliberalism. Uh, that's the first point to, to note. Uh, we cannot separate Egypt from the general processes of the world market and particularly uh, the experience of neoliberalism. So when, uh, specifically in the case of Egypt, uh, we saw demand fall in Europe in particular, which is Egypt's uh, major trading partner, uh, there was a, a very large drop in exports uh, at the uh, initial part of the crisis with, uh, with Europe. Uh, the figures uh, of of these drop is quite uh, quite significant, and uh, we also saw the other important way that Egypt has been connected to the world market was through remittances, um, uh, the worker remittances from migrant workers that were who have been working overseas. And again, there has been a, a large a large drop um, in these remittances as well. Egypt is the sixth largest. Well, in 2007, was the sixth largest. Uh, recipient of remittances in the world, uh, and it re and it, the the remittances actually fell by 18 percent from 2008 to 2009. So you can see this had a very uh, devastating impact on much of the Egyptian population. Um, in terms of exports, Egypt's um, uh, exports to the European Union dropped by nearly 30 percent um, in 2009. So you can see again. Um, in this way. So th these two mechanisms, these two transmission mechanisms, both the exports and the remittances, is one way um, that Egypt was impacted directly by the crisis. And then, of course, on top of this, we need to add on uh, the food uh, price rises that have been uh, uh, very dramatic across the world. And Egypt, which uh, uh, in which millions of people uh, rely upon uh, food subsidies to survive, uh, has been again dramatically impacted by this food price inflation. There was, in in January, for example, of 2011, uh, compared to January of 2010, there was an 18% increase in in basic food prices in Egypt. Um, now, again, this has to be placed in in the context of the uh, of neoliberalism and the fact that much of the the subsidies that Egyptians received by f uh, on food have been uh, have been reduced over the last few decades. Talk a little bit, if you could, uh, about uh, the role. I mean, you've mentioned the, the uh, neoliberalism, the, the global players. I'm, I'm interested in one player in particular, the United States. Uh, Egypt has been the, about the second largest uh, market for uh, American-made arms in the world uh, after Israel. And uh, I'm, uh, could you maybe explain what their angle is in all of this in, in prop propping up uh, uh, the, the Mubarak regime? 
Well, yes, Egypt has been, uh, again, for three decades, uh, a very critical uh, ally of the United States in the region. Uh, now, clearly this has to do with uh, the relationship with Israel, um, the fact that Egypt has a, uh, a very strong connection with Israel, both politically um, and economically. But it has to also be situated in the broader regional framework. Um, what the United States has been trying to do over the last uh, uh, decade or so has been essentially to link or knit together uh, the Middle East under its uh, economic and political umbrella. And one of the ways that it has been doing this has been through signing a series of free trade agreements um, with states in the region, Arab states in the region. And in the case of Egypt, uh, this has taken a particular form. What, what the United States has done is to uh, sign with Egypt what are called uh, quiz or qualified industrial zone uh, agreements. And these are uh, zones uh, within Egypt, industrial zones, that produce goods for the U.S. market. And the U.S. has given the goods produced um, in these markets duty-free access to the United States. But, and this is a crucial point, what, uh, what the United States has required the Egyptian government to do uh, in order to get this duty-free access is to set a certain percentage of the input, inputs into the products made in these quiz um, as having an Israeli uh, component. So it's been, here you can see very clearly the link between the linkage and normalization with the Israeli state and the economic uh, uh, processes of neoliberalism in the Middle East. So the quiz um, now constitute a very large proportion of uh, Egyptian exports to the United States. It's, it's been around uh, 40% in, in 2010 of all Egypt's exports to the United States come from the quiz, these qualified industrial zones. And uh, they've been... They've, they've been increasing in size um, and attracting investment from other other countries as well. Now, the, these quiz are not isolated to Egypt. It's also similar processes in the case of um, Jordan as well. Uh, but what we see here is that the United States uh, has very clearly linked both the political and the economic processes uh, of restructuring in the region as a whole, and, and, and this has been centrally aimed around bringing Israel into um, into uh, normal relations with the Arab world and trying to do this under the umbrella of the United States. Now, where does Egypt fit in in terms of the uh, America's uh, control and hegemony over Middle East oil? Uh, well, a uh, United States policy in the Middle East is, of course, driven by uh, its interests in the Gulf region, um, uh, precisely because of the, the presence of oil. Uh, not just oil as a, uh, a commodity or an energy resource, but also uh, through the connection of petrodollars that uh, are generated by the sale of that oil uh, in the Gulf. And then these petrodollars are very often invested into um, the U.S. market as well. So there's both a, a financial as well as a, um, an energy aspect to the United States' relationship with the Gulf. So this is really the core of uh, U.S. Uh, policy uh, within the region uh, and its relations with Israel, its relations with the Arab regimes are very much subordinated and structured to this uh, relationship um, or this intention on on um, dominating the Gulf region. Now, uh, much of what we see uh, under the uh, the corporate-dominated media in North America, it, it, the, the, the anger is, is directed predominantly at Mubarak and yet um, Mubarak is... Uh, 
just uh, has basically been a puppet of uh, of U.S. and, and Israeli interests. So I'm wondering if, uh, within the wake of these populist uprisings, are we going to see a, a genuine democracy, or are we just going to see uh, the Mubarak replaced with, uh, you know, an, uh, maybe a, a more acceptable puppet? <laughs> well, this this is the, certainly the main question that, uh, uh, and the key question that that we see unfolding in in Egypt today. Uh, the the aim of uh, the United States, I mean, clearly during the course of the uprising, the United States has tried to uh, uh, walk a very thin line, um, showing support for Mubarak, um, uh, and this was openly expressed by U.S. government officials, as well as, of course, their allies in the region, uh, no less than than Israel uh, and the other Arab regimes. But what we see after the overthrow of Mubarak is an attempt, I think, very much to frame these uprisings just solely a question of democracy. Um, but what I think, if you look at the uh, the, the content of Egypt's uh, relations with the, with the region as a whole and its role in the broader alignment of U.S. power, that you cannot separate out these uh, democratic questions or the, the, the desire for political change from the kinds of economic uh, relationships that exist in Egypt. And so the battle that we are going to see, and we are seeing certainly over the last week or so, has been an attempt by the Egyptian protesters to really broaden out um, the strikes, uh, the industrial actions that have been taking place, really trying to um, see a a fundamental uh, social transformation in the region. But uh, on the other side, we see... The Egyptian elite, we see the the U.S. Uh, government um, and their allies in the region, as well as the Egyptian military, trying to pull this down, uh, pu- pull this back to slow down the process and, and just um, uh, keep it focused around the question of uh, a, a new uh, a, a new government, um, a new face, but without fundamentally changing the content of the Egyptian regime. Now, where are the people on the ground, among the protesters, among the the citizens who are rising up? Do you see any significant factionalization happening? And where are the workers, the unions? Uh, Do do you see any signs that some are are more focused on rebelling against Mubarak and others looking for more fundamentally, a more fundamental transformation, as you put it? Well, what we certainly uh, need to point out here is that these, uh, protests didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, they've, there have been, particularly from 2006 to 2008, uh, a very uh, important wave of strikes and industrial actions in Egypt. And these were really uh, led by and saw the emergence of independent uh, forms of organizing, independent forms of worker organization. And up until that point, and you can see this in more recent times in the uprisings, the official trade union body was very much linked to the Mubarak regime. So these independent worker organizations were very uh, critical uh, in laying the ground for some of the demonstrations that uh, occurred in the in the recent weeks. Uh, it's not just at the face of uh, uh, the of industrial action or, or, or not just in factories that this has had an impact. Uh, the April 6th movement that has been... Uh, spoken about quite widely in the in the media, also emerged um, at the time of these strikes in 2006 to 2008. So we can see uh, there is a strong connection between 
um, parts of the youth movement as well as these independent worker organizations. And certainly I think if you look at the content of their demands over the last week in particular, they are very much taking up the questions of needing to uh, break with the neoliberal model and, and also broader political questions of Egypt's role in the region. Uh, one final point. Um, are you optimistic uh, looking at these developments, that uh, these populist struggles, people looking for a, a complete new transformation of, of, of what they've uh, endured for decades, that they will survive attempts by, uh, say, the IMF, the World Bank, and uh, countries like the United States and Israel to, uh, to manipulate the process and just deliver a, a, a different regime or the same regime with a, a different leadership? I, I, I'm, I, I am cautiously optimistic in the sense that these uprisings are really uh, an incredible event. There, there has been, there has not been a moment of such potential in the Arab world uh, for decades. Uh, so I think, uh, in that sense, they really represent um, really a, a very impressive and important uh, uh, point in history. And I, I think, to a large part. Your question is not going to be answered solely within the borders of Egypt. And this is the other important dynamic of these uprisings, is that they, the way that they have spread throughout the Arab world, they pose again uh, the, 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 the unity, the inherent unity of the Arab region as well. Uh, and if we were to see uh, a successful uprising in Libya, uh, we would then have um, across North Africa, Tunisia, Libya, and Egypt, contiguous territories where you, you have this kind of uh, 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 fundamental change. And that, that really is a very important development that, that can't be understated. And I think uh, the way this is going to continue to unfold across the region uh, is a cause for optimism. But at the same time, we need to temper this with the, the understanding that uh, we, we need to see these move, move further and, and, uh, than just uh, the figureheads just changing the, the face of the regimes, but actually moving towards a fundamental change. Well, Adam, Hani, I want to thank you very much for uh, joining us on Alert, and uh, we'll continue to monitor these events as they develop in the coming weeks. So thank you for thank joining you us. Much, thank you. Thank you. Adam Hani is lecturer at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. Hi, this is Mitch Podolik, and this is Music is the Weapon. When I was 13 years old, my older sister, Alice, asked me if I wanted to go to a concert. Now, Alice, you have to understand, was an adventurous uh, person who was exploring music, and she eventually taught me about people like Dizzy Gillespie, and all. well, really, she taught me about music altogether. The concert she took me to was at Massey Hall, and I thought we were going to a classical concert. And what we went to was a show by a man named Peter Seeger, who is, of course, very well known to all of you, and is very well known to me now, because that funny little concert pretty much was the turning point in my life. All of a sudden, I found what I was looking for, and uh, I've been playing the banjo and being a Seegerite all of my life, all of my adult life. And one of the most interesting things is that when I walk around and I think about Pete's music, in my head is a whole whack of songs not in English. 
Now, I know I've destroyed these songs myself personally many, many times with terrible renditions of all of them. But I thought today we would do Pete Seeger not in English, just for fun. So starting off with two amazing songs from the Spanish Civil War, here is Pete Seeger with Las Cuatro Generales. Los cuatro generales, mamita mía, serán alzados, serán alzados. Para la noche buena, para la noche buena, para la noche buena, mamita mía, serán arcados, serán arcados. The four insurgent generals, the four insurgent generals, the four insurgent generals, mamita mia, they tried to betray us, they tried to betray us. Next Christmas, holy evening, next Christmas, holy evening, Next Christmas, holy evening, mamita mia, they'll all be hanging, they'll all be hanging. Madrid, que bien resistes, Madrid, que bien resistes, Madrid, que bien resistes, mamita mia, los bombardeos, los bombardeos. Madrid, you wondrous city, Madrid, you wondrous city, Madrid, you wondrous city, mamita mia, they wanted to take you, they wanted to take you, but your courageous children, but your courageous children, but your courageous children, mamita mia, they did not disgrace you, they did not disgrace you. Los cuatro generales, los cuatro generales, los cuatro generales, mamita mia. Luchamos contra los morros, 
Viva the 15th Brigade. And before that, Las Cuatro Sanadales. Don't you like that verse about my next Christmas holy evening? They'll all be hanging. Too bad, eh? We we sure had all the good songs, but they won all the wars. Next, we're going to go across from Spain, and we're going to go to Africa, and we're going to discover three different songs from three different parts of Africa, all sung by our friend, Mr. Peter Seeger. And to start... Here's a wonderful song called Xochalosa. It's all about a railroad train. The name of it is Chochalosa. Es on taba, through the hills. Stimelasi fume rodesia. Steam away through Rhodesia. Oh, you hum along. I can't get the words.
Means angel, I love you, angel. But I am defeated because I haven't got enough money to buy you to be my wife. This is a song I've sung many times before, but I'll try once again on it. Because it needs some low voices. <laughs> Male or female? <laughs> All the low voices, this is what you say. <laughs>
That was Pete Seeger with Wimoway, but Wimoway is really called Mabubi, and the author was Solomon Linda, and before that, Malaika, and before that, Shoshalosa. Three songs from Africa sung by my folk hero, Pete Seeger. And that's it for this week, folks. See you next week. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again, or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Serbinuk. Alert headlines by Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days by Ben Wood. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine. Pick up the latest issue of Canadian Dimension magazine today and discover how Canadian mining companies are behind serious human rights abuses and environmental destruction from the Congo to Ecuador. You can visit CanadianDimension.com to read some of these featured articles, check out our latest blogs, or order a subscription to Canadian Dimension. The Canadian Dimension special mining issue is on newsstands and in bookstores now. Get it together.